Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to our midweek Bible study. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and this is Wednesday, September 21st. Today, we're continuing in our study of 2 Corinthians. In fact, we just started last week, so if you missed our opening study session, you can catch up right here on this media platform. Let me ask you a question. The title for today's study is called Paul's Change of Plans. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can, or Bible apps, you can open them up and just hang on to 2 Corinthians 1, starting with verse 12. We'll get there in just a minute. But let me ask you, have you ever changed plans? Have your plans ever changed? You know, maybe you were planning to go from point A to point B and then on to C. But something happens and you can't get to point B for whatever the reason is, and you go directly to point C. But you've got to let point B know that you're not coming, right? Well, that's what happens to Paul. But sometimes when our plans change, it's a good thing. It's for a really legit reason. You know, maybe there's medical concerns. Maybe there's something that's happened. You have to get home back to point C and where you have to get to wherever you're headed, but you can't get to that intermediate stop. So there are other times, though, when maybe it's not legit. Maybe you just really don't want to go. Maybe you've got some ill feelings towards whoever's at point B or whatever's at point B. And you even have to lie to tell them, I'm not coming. Well, whatever that is, we're going to talk about Paul's change of plans. Because after praising God for the comfort that the Lord had shown him in his most recent travels, Paul started to explain his most recent travel plans to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul told them that he would visit them after traveling through Macedonia. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 16, 5 through 7. But since that time, his plans changed. He altered his travel plans. Why did he do that? And how did the Corinthians react? I'll tell you the answers to that and other questions momentarily. But right now, as we always do, let's start with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Most High God, it is such a joy to be with you today. Thank you so much for all that have come to listen and or be in person or see this video recording. God, it's to your glory we do this. We've come to study your word and find out more about what you would have to say to us and how we can live our lives better for you. Thank you for the truth in your word, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. As I said, the text for today is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 4. So get those Bibles or Bible apps open if they're not already there, and you follow along as I read. Here we go, 2 Corinthians 1, starting with verse 12. We can say with confidence and with clear conscience that we have lived with a God-given holiness and sincerity in all our dealings. We have depended on God's grace, not on our own human wisdom. That is how we have conducted ourselves before the world and especially toward you. Our letters have been straightforward and there is nothing written between the lines and nothing you can't understand. I hope someday you will fully understand us, even if you don't understand us now. Then on the day when the Lord Jesus returns, you will be proud of us in the same way we are proud of you. Since I was so sure of your understanding and trust, I wanted to give you a double blessing by visiting you twice, first on my way to Macedonia, and again when I returned from Macedonia, then you could send me on my way to Judea. You may be asking why I changed my plan. Do you think I make my plans carelessly? Do you think I am like people of the world who say yes when they really mean no? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you does not waver between yes and no. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. 
He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you, and as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes, and through Christ our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. It is God who enables us, along with you, to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us, and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. Now I call upon God as my witness that I am telling you the truth. The reason I didn't return to Corinth was to spare you from a severe rebuke. But that does not mean we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. We want to work together with you so you will be full of joy, for it is by your own faith that you stand firm. And now 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 4. So I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. For if I caused you grief, who will make me glad? Certainly not someone I have grieved. That is why I wrote you as I did, so that when I do come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me the greatest joy. Surely you all know that my joy comes from your being joyful. I wrote that letter in great anguish, with a troubled heart and many tears. I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. What a powerful section of scripture. Are you ready to dive in? Here we go. Let's go back to chapter 1, verse 12. It reads, We can say with confidence and a clear conscience that we've lived with a God-given holiness and sincerity in all our dealings. We have depended on God's grace, not our own human wisdom. That is how we have conducted ourselves before the world and especially toward you. Here's the question. In this verse, Paul appears to be justifying his and his companions' thoughts and actions. In light of what we studied last week, why do you think this was necessary? With confidence in a clear conscience, Paul could say that he and his companions had been honest and sincere. Paul didn't want to bring reproach on the gospel with his behavior. He was extremely careful. Paul tried to be completely sincere, and he tried to act in a way that was beyond criticism. In this way, he would draw attention to the truthfulness of his message instead of his own behavior. In addition to his conduct, Paul pointed to the reason for his good behavior and the source of his teaching. It did not come from earthly wisdom or what we know as human knowledge, but from God's grace. Paul had already shown the difference between human wisdom and God's wisdom in 1 Corinthians. Although most people look either for eloquent speeches or awe-inspiring signs to authenticate the truth of a message, God chooses to use foolish and weak messengers to shame the wise with his powerful message of truth. You see, Paul wasn't relying on his own wisdom and knowledge when he visited Corinth with the truth of the gospel. Instead, he was relying on God's enabling power, something that should have been clear to all the Corinthians. Number two, look at verses 13 and 14. They read, Our letters have been straightforward, and there's nothing written between the lines, and nothing you can't understand. I hope someday you will fully understand us, even if you don't understand us now. Then on the day when the Lord Jesus returns, you will be proud of us in the same way we are proud of you. Here's the question. Apparently, the Corinthians were questioning Paul's sincerity in these verses. Why were they doing that? Some in the church were claiming that Paul wrote one thing and said another. Now here, he defends his sincerity, especially his honesty in his previous letters. 
If the Corinthians were not convinced of his genuine intentions, Paul could only hope, that is, confidently expect, that his sincere intentions would be revealed when the Lord Jesus came back. On that day, Paul expected that his actions and words would be shown for what they are, blameless and true. Indeed, the genuineness of the Corinthians' faith would be a matter of great joy for Paul on that day. They would be able to be proud of having Paul as being their teacher, and he would have been proud having them as his converts. Number three, let's look at verses 15 and 16. They read, Since I was so sure of your understanding and trust, I wanted to give you a double blessing by visiting you twice, first on my way to Macedonia, and again when I returned from Macedonia. Then you could send me on my way to Judea. Here's the question. What did Paul base his travel plans to visit the Corinthians on? His travel plans were based on his confidence that the Corinthians were taking pride in him, just as he was in them. He had made a quick, unscheduled visit to Corinth, but when he arrived, it found quite a different atmosphere at the church. At least a portion of its members had rejected him and were questioning his authority. Paul would later call this a painful visit, one that caused a breach in the Corinthians' intimate relationship with him. This painful visit was quick because Paul had to hurry back to visit the churches in Macedonia. But while he was in Corinth, he had promised to visit the Corinthians on the way back. Now, I'll talk to you in just a little while about this letter that talked about the painful visit. There's some speculation as to where that fits in the, in the chronology of First and Second Corinthians. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Number four, verse 17 reads, you may be asking why I changed my plan. Do you think I make my plans carelessly? Do you think I am like people of the world who say yes when they really mean no? Well, here's the question. Why did Paul change his travel plans and what effect did it have on him and his accusers? Yes, I said accusers. Can you tell in that verse when Paul says, you may be asking why I changed my plans. Do you think I changed them carelessly? Well, the only reason that would come out is if someone was accusing him of doing something other than being honest. Well, here's the answer that I came up with for this for you. Paul had made his original plans thinking that the church had solved most of its problems. But when the time came for Paul's scheduled trip to Corinth, the crisis had not been fully resolved, although there was progress being made in some of those areas. So Paul wrote a letter instead. Paul's change of plans had given his accusers at Corinth reasons to criticize and complain about his conduct, and even criticize his authority. By criticizing him for erratic travel plans, Paul's opponents were implying that he couldn't be trusted. If Paul couldn't be trusted, then how could they believe in his message? The allegation that Paul was no different than the people of the world meant that he was no more reliable than anybody else. A worldly person governed by pure self-interest and selfish desires would say yes when it was convenient, but then renege on that promise when some other better opportunity came around. Paul's opponents in Corinth had used Paul's own sharp distinction between the world and the spirit against him. They had labeled his actions as being motivated by the world's standards. This accusation was in direct contradiction to Paul's own claim in 1 Corinthians that his preaching was not from himself or any other human authority, but from the spirit of God. Now, labeling his actions as coming from worldly reasoning was a direct assault on Paul's spiritual authority. These serious accusations circulating in Corinth were the reason why Paul had to write 2 Corinthians. 
In essence, this letter is a passionate defense of Paul's apostolic authority and the truth of his message. Number five, let's look at verses 18 and 19. They say, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you does not waver between yes and no. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you. And as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. The question is, in these verses, how does Paul address his critics? Instead of immediately answering the criticisms of his behavior, Paul addressed the fundamental problem in Corinth. The believers in Corinth were questioning the accuracy of Paul's message to them. Paul clearly saw that questioning his motives and honesty would eventually lead to them questioning the truth of the message. Instead of defending himself, Paul reminded the Corinthians of God's faithfulness. He does not waver between yes and no. All of God's promises concerning the Messiah or the Savior of Israel were fulfilled in Christ. He is the divine yes. Jesus is the embodiment of God's faithfulness. If Jesus had proved himself faithful, then Jesus' appointed messengers, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, would certainly be faithful and trustworthy. Paul had shown his faithfulness as a messenger of Christ by not wavering in his preaching. The fact that Paul consistently preached Christ as he had with them meant he would be trustworthy in the smaller things, such as travel plans. Number six, verse 20 reads, For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes, and through Christ our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. Here's the question. This verse reiterates a key point that Paul had made. What is it, and why is it important? The key point is this. All of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ. Do you see that there in verse 20? His earthly ministry is an example of God's faithfulness to his people. God had promised he would provide a savior, and he did. Christ obediently and faithfully said yes to God and his great promises. The Hebrew word amen conveys a firm agreement with what has been said. The Israelites use this word to express their agreement to God's law and its blessings and curses. In this verse, Paul explained why Christians use the word. It is the way Christians acknowledge that Jesus has fulfilled all of God's promises. Jesus is the great amen because he has been faithful to God. So when Christians say amen, they're joining Jesus in saying yes to God. By doing this, Christians everywhere bring glory to God. They bring God the proper respect and honor that he deserves. With this type of reasoning, Paul made it clear that his own integrity stood on Christ's integrity because his message was consistently Christ's gospel. Number seven, let's look at verses 21 and 22. They say, it is God who enables us along with you to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he's promised us. Now here's the question. In these two verses, Paul described how he and his co-workers, Timothy and Silas, and the Corinthian believers were all tied together. They had all received the Holy Spirit, an indication they all belonged to God through Christ. Now, what four key terms does Paul use in these verses to describe how God made them all part of his family? The first term is stand firm. Do you see that in verse 21? Stand firm. It's derived from legal terminology. In the first century Mediterranean world, 
This was a technical word for a legal guarantee that would confirm a sale as valid. Paul used the word to express that it is God himself who guarantees the salvation of those who believe in Jesus. Having the guarantee or confirmation of God Almighty would be the best security a person could ever ask for, especially since the Lord God had already proven his faithfulness to his promises in the life of Jesus Christ. The second term is commissioned. That's right at the end of verse 21. This refers to all believers and literally means anointed. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed to signify their commission to be representatives of God to the Israelites. The Holy Spirit comes upon believers, making them God's representatives to the world. The third term is identified. God identifies his people by placing the Holy Spirit in believers' hearts. God himself has given us his mark of ownership when he gave his spirit to live in us. I would encourage you to see Paul's use of the word in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, and Ephesians 4, verse 30. The last term in these verses is called the first installment. Now, this installment guarantees, as it says in the verse, it guarantees everything he has promised us. This installment is like a down payment that a buyer will give a seller to declare the intent of paying the full amount. God gives his spirit to his children as a down payment. It is only a foretaste of the glorious joy that we're going to experience in heaven, the full payment that God has promised. These four assurances are the basis for a believer's certainty that he or she is saved and will live with God forever in heaven. It is the spirit of God, not a Christian's words, that guarantees a believer's salvation. Amen to that. Number eight, verse 23 says, now I call upon God as my witness that I am telling the truth. The reason I didn't return to Corinth was to spare you from a severe rebuke. Here's the question. Here, Paul tells the Corinthians why he didn't return to visit them. What is the reason? Paul wanted to make it clear that his decision to cancel his second visit to Corinth had been made out of a consideration for the spiritual welfare of the Corinthians. He had not made the decision for selfish reasons, as his opponents had claimed. His motive had been to spare them from sorrow that another visit might produce. Apparently, Paul wanted to give the Corinthians time to resolve some of those problems that had surfaced during his last visit. Number 9, verse 24 reads, But that does not mean we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. We want to work together with you so you will be full of joy. For it is by your own faith that you stand firm. So here's the question. What point was Paul trying to get across in this verse to the Corinthians? He was reminding the Corinthian believers that their faith was a gift from God, not subject to anyone's control except God's. In this respect, the Corinthians were subject to no one except the ultimate judge, God himself. As a result of this gift of faith, the Corinthians were to be full of joy and to stand firm. Do you see that in that verse? Paul wasn't their taskmaster. Instead, he was a fellow worker pointing out how they could experience the joy God wanted to give them. Now we cross over to chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is number 10 on our list. Let's look at the first two verses. So I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. For if I cause you grief... Who will make me glad? Certainly not someone I have grieved. 
So here's the question. Why would another visit from Paul be painful for the Corinthians and for him? Well, apparently on Paul's last visit, a member of the Corinthian church had publicly challenged Paul. Paul issued a severe warning to those who were persistently sinning in the church. Now, remember from 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we know that the Corinthians had problems with, number one, incest, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. They had problems with adultery, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. They had problems with incessant arguing, 1 Corinthians 1, 10. There were problems with disruptions during worship, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 22. There were lawsuits between believers, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. And false teachers were criticizing Paul's actions and authority, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 to 11. So continuing with my thoughts here on this answer, on his last visit, apparently the problems had not been dealt with and their time together had been painful. Paul decided not to visit the Corinthians again because he didn't want to cause unnecessary sorrow. He had already rebuked the church on his last visit. He wanted to give them more instruction on how to correct some of the abuses in the church but he also wanted to give them some time to resolve the issues amongst themselves for their faith would ultimately stand on God, not on Paul or his efforts to reform them. Now, number 11, verse three, it reads, that is why I wrote to you as I did, so that when I come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me the greatest joy. Surely you all know that my joy comes from your being joyful. Here's the question. What letter is Paul referring to here, and what does it say about Paul's joy? Paul's last letter, as referred to in this verse, was most likely not the book of 1 Corinthians, primarily because that book has a whole different tone. It doesn't reflect the extreme sorrow described by Paul in these following verses. It is generally accepted by Bible commentators that the letter Paul's referring to here is lost, and it occurred sometime between the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Remember, we said last week that there's about a year's time period in between the two. So that's where this letter would have been. Apparently, Paul wrote this severe letter to the Corinthians soon after his painful visit with them. In this lost letter, he had exhorted the Corinthians to discipline their errant members, specifically the ones who were publicly opposing his authority. This verse reiterates that Paul's own joy depended on the spiritual condition of the Corinthians. The first part of 2 Corinthians emphasizes the interdependence of Paul and the Corinthians, the community of faith that existed between them. Paul's own spiritual success was intimately connected with the Corinthians' spiritual success. This verse again emphasizes that the Corinthians provided part of Paul's motivation. In fact, their strong faith and their happiness was one of the reasons he could courageously face the trials of an evangelist. And now the last question for today, number 12, verse four reads, I wrote that letter in great anguish with a troubled heart and many tears. I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love that I have for you. Well, here's the question. What does Paul say was his purpose in writing that letter we just talked about? Clearly, Paul was sorry that his letter would hurt the Corinthians, but he had to send it anyway. His severe reprimand in the letter was aimed at securing a change of heart in the Corinthian believers. He knew it would cause much sorrow, but he was hoping that it would lead to repentance. 
That's why Paul claimed here that his motive was love. Folks, sometimes the most loving action a person can do for a fellow Christian is to confront him or her with the truth. The truth often hurts. Confronting a person in the wrong with the truth, however, can be the best thing a friend can ever do. Well, we have reached the end of our study today. I hope this has been challenging for you. I hope it's been encouraging to you as well. And I hope that maybe we've discovered something today that maybe you didn't know. I know every time we go through these lessons together, I learn something that I didn't know. And I'm so glad that we get a chance to do this. Next time, we're going to study 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And we're going to talk about how there is forgiveness for the sinner. I can't wait to get to that with you, but I have to. We'll be back next week with that for sure. Until then, thank you so much for taking time. It means a lot to me and a lot to the church family and Word of Hope that you come to join us, whether it's through the podcast, in person, or watching these videos. We're so grateful for you, and we pray for you all the time. Please be in prayer for us. Thanks for joining me today. Until next time, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.